I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. Welcome to episode 111, the triple single of R&D in the QC. Sounds good, right? That was awesome. You know I love that. A triple single? What else would you call it? Very rarely do you blow my mind in like a real good way. And you've just done that. The bar is low, apparently. Because you know I love triple triple doubles. I've even uh, coined a few triple triples. Triple single. Yeah. That's brand new. That's exciting. Go. Sorry, I uh, I interrupted you. Yeah, you got excited there. So, all right. We got two big topics today. So we're not going to try to cover everything that's happened in the two or three weeks since we last lied and said we were going to try to get back to being a weekly podcast. Um, we are going to hone in on the two things that have been easily the top two issues over the last month uh, in terms of media coverage, in terms of the emails we're getting from people, uh, the outreach we're getting from people asking questions about what exactly is going on. Um, And those two things are the arts and the 2040 comprehensive plan. I say we start with arts and Tark, you were on that committee. I think we mentioned a couple episodes ago briefly that the mayor had created an ad hoc committee um, that was you, Braxton, Julie, Malcolm and Ed Y'all were exploring uh, how we currently fund the arts, how we might fund the arts going forward. And your committee has now brought forward a recommendation to the council. Uh, The council has told the manager to bring that to us in the budget um, based on that recommendation to to create the budget item for that based on that recommendation. Tell us what that recommendation was. Sure. And so, and we talked about this maybe two episodes ago. So I think we teed up uh, for our listeners kind which of what, was probably like two months ago. Right. Yeah. Which is, yeah. <laughs> I was back like when the referendum was happening, I'm assuming. Um, so, so here, here's kind of a historical flyby at a high level to bring you up to speed and kind of where we are now. So that committee came together. We worked uh, as five of us um, pretty hard to, to figure out what we needed to do as a council, as a city of Charlotte organization relating to the arts, because the bottom line was, you know, we have spent, let's just say in the last fiscal year budget, over $11 million on arts related um, topics. And over the last 15 years, um, we've given over $50 million directly to the ASC, uh, where, um, you know, we've had some systemic problems that just haven't been solved. So it wasn't time for us to say, uh, we need to solve arts as a visionary item for the city. That's too, that's big, too bigger, much bigger than us. It wasn't time for us to say, what's the fate of the ASC? That's separate, their fate's in their own hands. It was time for us to say with our budget and particularly a $3.2 million um, a year line item that goes to the ASC, what do we need to do to finally once and for all pull the bandaid off of this Groundhog Day that has been going on for nearly two decades now uh, and, and make some sense of it and take, take our, our fate into our own hands. So we developed a proposal 
with five of us. And it's not like a normal five that kind of come together. I mean, it's me and Braxton, Ed and Julie and Malcolm. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a diverse a unique, group of perspectives. Right. Right. Like it, there's no such thing as like the Republicans and Democrats on city council. That doesn't even matter. Right. It's just like, what side of what kind of uh, angle are you? So if this, you all this five ended group, up agreeing on something. We all five did. Then oh. You're trying to speed me up here. Got it. Check. Um, so <laughs> you're, you're terrible. So it is basically, we will focus in on economic development as a perspective. We will focus in on ensuring that the arts organizations, as we're redefining our own economic development related model to this, um, don't struggle. Uh, so we're moving our investment up to $4 million. We're putting it into um, a, a separate account where um, external from the city, that we are asking the private sector to at least match that 4 million. So now we'll, we're turning 3.2 to 8 million uh, and it's all contingent on that. And the manager needs to um, hire a, um, a arts and cultural commissioner that will be tasked with ensuring um, the arts groups that existing and normally got money that uh, from the ASC that we would uh, funnel there uh, will uh, remain whole at a minimum at the levels of like 2020. And then others, as we have that other money, we develop a short-term plan to ensure it's equitably um, um, divvied up amongst those who can make the biggest impact. But again, here's the punchline. The long-term vision is turning this into something that is arts and culture for the future, a business-minded view, but also a mind towards the beauty of arts and culture and the fact that um, it isn't always um, dollars and cents and how it can be measured, but it certainly has to be sustainable for a future model that isn't the same as it was. And I think that's one of the things that people have, have picked up on in the terminology that's been used that's maybe caused some anxiety um, is people say, well, you know, if it's, it's, if it's about ROI and it's about uh, return, uh, or the return on investment, the economic development that it's created from the investment in the arts, certainly there is a component to that, but I think the argument is there should also be art for art's sake. And there are going to be a lot of grassroots organizations that probably don't generate this big economic development impact, but there is still a, an inherent value let in me, them, right? Let me, let me actually say something, um, and I, I credit is where it's due, that I learned in this partnership process from Braxton Winston. And I wholeheartedly agree with it. And he's, he said this over and over again, and it took several times for it to actually permeate my brain. Cause I'm always more on the macro economic development angle, right? I'm always like, how many, how many like freaking, you know, like millions of dollars of direct and then indirect impact did it have from an event or, you know, whatever. He said, every single job, particularly in these, you know, whether it's symphony and orchestral players, ballerinas, I believe is the formal term, or a small group of street artists that happen to be involved in it, every job that's created, every job that, that they can do their creative work, like Tim and Matt with the creative morning stuff, they say this stuff, like, it's not just if you can do that for money, but also do it as a career and as a job, as a way to use creative creativity, arts and culture to build generational wealth, that in itself is economic development and impact too. That is an ROI we can measure. Agreed. And I, I think that one of the things in terms of the fiscal angle that we have to look at this through is the city is the owner and caretaker of many of the premier venues that arts are housed in in this community. And so, you know, we are the ones paying the debt service and, and uh, essentially paying the mortgage on these buildings. And so I do think we have a fiscal responsibility 
as the stewards of taxpayer dollars to make sure that we shore up the organizations whose existence shores up the stability of those venues. So I do think that that is a, a logical thing for us to consider. And it's something we ought to be ob feel obligated to consider um, because if, if some of these big institutions were to go belly up and then it empties out these, these venues, then the, the health and well-being of these venues could be in question. But I do think that it's not an effort by the city, at least. And again, I wasn't on the committee, but my sense of it is this is not about let's push all the money on the table towards the big, you know, the big entity arts organizations and take all of it away from the grassroots. Um, I don't think that's it at all. I think it's us trying to make the pie bigger and, and still spread it throughout there. The other thing that I think has caused some confusion is city council is not going to be taking like line item votes on who gets what dollar amount and, and make them justify why. And I think people think that we are trying to take control. Like we're going to have a line item veto and say, well, that organization didn't get money because I didn't like the performances they put on last year. That's definitely we, not we, what's happening we, we don't have any more ability to do that than we get to do in meddling with, with airport contracts and things like that. Do we get a view? Sure. Is it under our kind of jurisdiction? Yeah, but it's also kind of a enterprise fund-esque model uh, much like the airport in other ways where that can work. The final thing I'll say- The Angels in America point. example keeps coming up, which was kind of right about the time I think that you and I got to Charlotte. But um, this idea that something was put on that elected officials didn't like, so they pulled the funding. That's not what we're talking about here. And even if it was what we're talking about, which it's not, it's the dumbest example I've ever heard because how does that, how does, how does doing it the old way versus this way change it? It's still funding. <laughs> you can well, still I mean, I, just, I think people look at it as that's the only other big example that comes to mind of elected officials getting involved in arts funding. And that was arguably regardless of your position on that, regardless so, of your position of that, which is irrelevant to what I'm about to say, that is, is irrelevant to this conversation because it doesn't change a thing. It, it, that risk or lack thereof still exists in any model like this. As long as we're using taxpayer dollars and it's a budget line item that we have to approve every year, the opportunity still exists for us not to like a piece of art and decide yeah. not to decide to pull that funding. The other thing that I think is important, and we're going to talk about the comprehensive plan for the bulk of the show in the second half, but um, you know, this is something I brought up with Taiwo, the planning director, about the comprehensive plan. One of the things in there talks about the fact that we have in all these transit projects and things like the airport uh, improvement projects, we set aside with the transit stuff like 1% of the budget for public art. And in that it talked about local, regional, national, international artists. And I said, well, why in the world if we're using taxpayer dollars to build these facilities and, and build this stuff in our community, why not keep more of those arts dollars in the community by saying we're only gonna work with local or regional or, or Carolina artists? Um, and he seemed to think that was doable. And so I think there's a lot of ways that we can help strengthen the arts community. That's not just through funding that has historically been channeled through arts and science council and, it, and now might be channeled through a different path. Uh, but there's all this other money that we spend on art that's separate and apart from that. And I think focusing more of that to say, let's make sure that it's Charlotte or it's, it's Charlotte area or it's Carolina artists getting those dollars instead of us flying in someone from LA or from Paris or wherever um, is another way that we can help strengthen the two, local community here. Two final points, and then we'll transition to our main event. Um, uh, one, 
while we are not, while this has nothing to do, this has everything to do with us as a city of Charlotte and nothing to do with arts and culture for the entire city and a vision or the ASC and its future, I think you have to account for the fact because they are making it so that um, the ASC's angle in this needs to be fully understood. If you want to understand it, I suggest you go on their Facebook page or to their podcast area to WFAE, um, where on Monday on Charlotte Talks, Braxton Winston and I um, were on there with Mike Collins and Krista and another gentleman who was very impressive. And Krista I want to get the to new that. executive director of the Arts and Science Council. And I think interim executive director, right? Right, right. And um, I'm very interested to see where she goes and what happens here. But she is taking in her group, and I'm, I'm not going to say she's ex- somebody within that within that that entity is taking a very um, political approach to try to pressure us to do something differently. And because this is now becoming so public, it's very important that people understand, go back and listen to that because you can see us both answer questions back and forth directly. But the punchline, and hopefully we'll come across is, is what's most relevant is the ASC is now for the first time starting to uh, recognize and take accountability for some of the many issues and, and failures and flaws in their model over the last several decades. I applaud them. I applaud Krista for being on that front. However, to then push that forward and say, and the city of Charlotte is ripping that for, out from under us by making this decision to be good stakeholders, Braxton points, Braxton's point is value, valid as well on this, which is we have been complicit in those failures. And now we are taking our own future into our own hands. But what's more important is the ASC has a revenue problem. And it isn't as simple as them saying, oh, well, workplace giving went down. Yeah, it did. But if you look inside their financial statements, every category of giving on every level went down year over year from 2013 to 2018. So it is a revenue problem. And, it, and that it crosses all factors, which leads me to believe it is an organizational problem. And they have a balance sheet with $44 million in it. So whether we take our 3.2 and try to decide to do something or else, they need to clean up their own shop. They need to fix and figure out what their future is. And they're sitting on a small fortune that they can do all these things they're talking about and more. So I find it disingenuous that they are trying to make this public campaign about our measly 3.2 that has been misused for so many years when they're sitting on top of that that arsenal. And your second point is maybe don't involve Ty Woe so much in uh, in the art stuff yet. Let him focus on this next topic. Well, that's a, a small piece. I, I get your joke there, but it's the, the fact of the matter is there are other places that the city has the ability to help our arts community here, um, local grassroots arts community here. And it's not just this 3.2, soon to be $4 million. Um, it also is worth noting that these conversations were ongoing long before the transition and leadership of the Arts and Science Council, long before the report that they put out um, that acknowledged the shortfalls that the organization has had historically. So this isn't punishment. Um, this is not any, um, you know, the, this should not reflect ag- against the, the new director of the Arts and Science Council, because there's been talk about that something's got to change here for a while, and it, it just kind of come to a head There just now. hasn't been been the, 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 the political will to do it, and we now, with this council, have found it. And I think that deserves a, a, a lot of applause, even though we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that we take advantage of this time that we've bought ourselves uh, with this political will. But, but speaking to some of the grassroots artists in the wake of, of these conversations, I think their fear, and it's something that we need to be mindful of, demonstrating and and assuring folks is not the case 
is that we are simply going to say, all right, who are our five biggest, you know, organizations that draw in tourists or fill, put butts in seats in Belk Theater? And while, again, there is a need to shore up those organizations, that's not what we're trying to do. And so we've got to make sure that we're very mindful about um, giving them some peace of mind as it relates to the fact that we are still committed to arts from the absolute grassroots level to the biggest organizations. Absolutely. You are absolutely correct. That is a huge, oh, we're, we're dealing with the inside baseball so much that we're, we're neglecting that message. That is the message. And Braxton's point that he eloquently said of every job, every creative job that is creating generational wealth is a measure of economic impact there. But I think the broader point, which is just ironic to me is if you're scared of that and, and you're scared we're going to focus on it, well, the worst case scenario, if we did go that route for, for you artists in that bucket is you just keep not getting money <laughs> because that's the way the model is now, or we can fix it and, and do something. So there's, there is no reason for you not to bet on this model and then hope that also um, creates enough fire under the ASC where they fix their own, their own model and we have double wins because otherwise status quo means nothing for you guys. When our change is not going to be the end of the Arts and Science Council, they they exist. That's in their own hands. Yeah, that's I mean, in their they, own they exist separate and apart from us. We have been a funding partner. Um, if I had not, a balance sheet with forty-four million dollars in assets in it, I certainly wouldn't be saying, "Well, we're about to close up shop if we lose this three million bucks." Um, so it's again, it's not an attack on, on the Arts and Science Council if that's the direction <laughs> it ends up going. All right, so uh, that's arts in a nutshell. All right, we got two minutes for this next one. Yeah. The, I'll tee it up and then you describe what it all is. I feel like you're not going to tee it up well, though. Well, I'm not going to tee it up. I'm just going to say what's coming. So secret, first news drop here. We All we do is breaking news on R&B uh -oh, and the QC. Uh -oh. I got you. On Monday, in print. Monday, online, Monday, Monday. Monday, Monday, Monday. The most epic showdown in the history of the 2040 comp plan will occur. While two op-eds have been written of roughly 600 words each, one pro, one con on the 2040 comprehensive plan for Charlotte, yours truly, Mr. Bakari, Council Member Tark, penned the, the, the con op-ed, and I did so in a wonderful and truly, if, if Ben Shapiro and Rush Limbaugh had a baby and that baby became a city planner... <laughs> That is your con. That is your against. And then on the pro side, it took two of them to battle me. But when I found out one of those two was my good friend, Sam Spencer, I started getting a bit nervous <laughs> because clearly um, the guy is a, um, a hidden Einstein uh, and he is a, uh, uh, the Picasso of planning. I think a lot of people refer to him as. Um, and uh, this dude knows his stuff. And it isn't just him. He's got a, a partner in crime. They're writing it together. And they're going to appear side by side in the editorial section. Partner in crime being uh, Kiva Samuel from yes, the sorry. Planning Commission. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd hate to have to write. Uh, I'd hate to have to write an op-ed against Sam Spencer. But like I told you, you're better off having them run side by side than giving him the chance to directly rebut what you've written point by point, which... I think he would. Oh, I could rebut his point by point. Don't just don't discredit me like that. Um, and and Beck, Becca, Sam's much better half has weighed in in the comments here. Quilden? and uh, and she is excited about this uh, this cage match y'all are about to enter into. Oh, it's going to so, be amazing. So let's not spoil it all, but let's give some punchlines. Okay, to so it. the twenty forty comp plan is 
um, for a visual representation for the people watching at home on our, our live stream here, it's a 320-page uh, document. It's a lot. Um, and it's been in the works for three years or so. Uh, it is essentially the it intended to be the vision statement that will be codified in the Unified Development Ordinance, which would come some you know six, eight, ten months thereafter. Um, what I think is inarguable is there have been lots of community. Con I think it's inarguable. It is. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Um, lots of community conversations going on about this plan and lots of work that has gone into this plan. You, you will make a point that there maybe was not the level of engagement with council, but is zero it, not the as, level? Is that zero as it, as is the usually level? the case, you have the, the hyperbole disease that infects your brain and you have to say everything to the nth degree. And so at our meeting two weeks ago, you said, we need to go back to square one. Which, yeah. which, which was silly. I mean, there's, there's so much work that's gone into this and there's so much good stuff in it. And that doesn't mean, and I made several points that same meeting, that there are things I think need to be fixed or changed or improved or reconsidered or expanded on. There, there is work needed on this document before we can vote on it. But to, to make the statement that we need to go back to square one when a, te a whole team and teams of staff have spent three years working on it and done right, it. So let, let's, let me argue this. Let, let, Clearly, I was using my art and gift of hyperbole, but let me defend it for a minute, all right? Let's say square one was when Taiwo took over, okay? Let's just call that square one, all right? What already existed then? Well, I would argue that the, um, uh, the, the equity task force uh, report existed before then, of which that's about 50% of this, okay? I would argue that a huge chunk of the concepts of place types and all of that stuff existed, which I'd argue is about 25% of that. And the other 25% of that is essentially um, a compilation of 404 goals and sub goals of which 20% are illegal uh, and they're in there. So, so yes, I would say that if that is square one, we should probably head right on back there. So to the points that I was making about what I think can be improved on, there are things that we currently don't have the authority to take action on. And I do think that there is some merit to the idea that if we are creating a 20-year plan for a city, that we have to anticipate things that tools that we might have in the toolbox in the future. My point was we need to be more explicit about the fact that we don't have those tools in the toolbox today. And there's not currently the landscape in the state legislature for us to get those tools in the near future. If we want to say, you know, six, eight years from now, Maybe this is something that, that we're able to do. Um, I, I just think we need to be more clear because otherwise I think people can read that. And if they don't understand that dynamic, they might think, oh, the city is about to start doing this. Well, no, we can't, we don't have the power. And so there's things like that. There's things where we have conflicts that staff is well aware of when we, and the one you always use as an example is a good example, it's sidewalks and trees. Our goal is to have as interconnected a sidewalk network as possible. And our goal is to save as much of the tree canopy and even expand the tree canopy where we can. And those two things are naturally going to be in conflict with each other. Staff knows that, but I think the plan can better call out that we acknowledge these things are in conflict with each other. And when we and in the UDO process, we have to square those two circles and say, these two things are in conflict, but they are both worthy priorities. And, and in our codifying of this vision, 
we will have to figure out how to strike so a balance with between those me. two things. That that is an unsolved issue inside this vision plan, which is supposed to then guide how we put together the ordinances in the UDO, which that conflict will still exist. You're with me that it isn't here. No one did the work to figure that out of the what I mean. The acknowledgement of the conflict. The acknowledgement of the conflict is not there. The under I don't even the acknowledgement would have been a nice step, but what I mean is what's the solution? In what circumstances does one win over the other? That's a vision plan that enables us to put an no, ordinance in place. That's the, well. No, it, they sure, because here's my, my point before you- It could go, it could go either way. You're going to say but, on that. It could go either way, but I think- My point is this, Larkin, my point is this. You have to at least acknowledge the conflict and then you have to, in creating the ordinance, you are codifying something that says, this is how we strike that balance. Okay, so, so you're saying to me, you're saying to me that- all right, let's say I back up and, and try to be uh, flexible here. You're saying it would have been enough for them to just acknowledge that there are discrepancies between uh, the existence of a tree ordinance and the sidewalk ordinance. And they could have acknowledged that to say, we have to solve those in the ordinance. I think this is where they should have solved it. But let's say I, let's say I agree with that point there. That's fine. And they couldn't even acknowledge that. Yet they're in here in, in a very tactical minutia way laying out um things like impact fees are the things that we need and oh we must consider and have inclusionary zoning i mean how can you argue that those micro liberal tools are warranted to be in here yet something that's tactical and has no party lines like the 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 com conflict between ordinances that we currently have got avoided. Explain to me why this is nothing more than a liberal-driven manifesto. Well, I just said that the acknowledgement of the conflict and those things should be in there. That's one of the critiques that I've offered. But, but but they spent their time doing impact fees and inclusionary zoning. But to say that a, the, a city the size of Charlotte, the 15th largest city in the country, which is a democratic-led city would not even contemplate the idea of having some of the tools that many of our peer cities in the country have 10 or 15 or 20 years in the future, I think would also be missing the boat. Why would you not say it is possible we'll have those tools in the future? We need to acknowledge very clearly that we don't today and it's not up to why us would you go, whether why, we will. Why do you need to go forth in, 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 a, in a tool manner in very specificity on that front of which it's illegal yeah, and not just ratchet that up to a high level, like at least acknowledging that there's a conflict and we need more tools or maybe better what a policy is supposed to do is not define tools, but define the visionary outcomes by which you want to achieve through those tools because maybe it's another tool altogether. Well, I think it does acknowledge that like diverse price point housing in, in more communities in our city is, is a goal and that talks about tools we have and the tools we might have in the future. But again, you're arguing with me. And my point is I've said to them, we need a more explicit acknowledgement of what we can and can't do and why we can't do it and who it's up to. We need a more explicit acknowledgement that we have things that conflict with each other. And we realize that, and we'll have to rectify that as we codify it into an ordinance. So I'm making those points and saying, this is where I believe this document is not yet ready for a vote, but I'm not saying it needs to go back to square one. So I, you know, there are things Okay, there. I'll back away from, I'll back, I, I'm, I'm being overly emphasizing as I do. I will back away and I will say there is a lot of work in here. Some of it's good, some of it's copy pasted from the other stuff we already had, and some of it's bad. 
but it doesn't need to go back to square one unless I'm very angry and want to justify it as what I mean by square one. I think the more interesting conversation that some of us have been having, and we talked on the arts conversation about odd bedfellows, and I think this would qualify um, for those of us who have been having this conversation. One of the things that I actually have a concern about is- Victoria are odd bedfellows on this. Huh? Me and Victoria are odd bedfellows on and, this. And Victoria and I've had this conversation on several occasions now. The idea, and the, obviously the biggest piece of this in terms of the feedback we're getting from community groups is around the idea that single family zoning, uh, single family zoned areas, a parcel would be allowed to, someone would be allowed to create a duplex or a triplex on, on any single family parcel. Um, that is creating a lot of anxiety and a lot of blowback uh, and the thing that, and you and I have talked about this too, I think what that will do is create a lot of homeownership opportunities for middle-income families. Nope. And it could be a huge boon for them. What's a middle-income family? 120 to 150%, I don't know, 100 of the area median income. I mean, families that are making- I, I, my, in my hunch is upper middle class people, is people that are some benefit out of this. Developers are going to get a monster benefit out of this. And low to mid, mid, mid low income families are gonna be the, the ones that get gentrified what I mean and is, hurt the most. Well, a family that can responsibly afford a $250,000 to $350,000 house. That's, I think, where you're gonna see a lot of a lot of houses, a lot of housing options created in like the twos and threes and fours, more so than are available now. And so I think it could help families in those in those areas. Here's what Victoria and I have, have talked about and talked about with staff, and they are working on trying to figure out how can we acknowledge and address this challenge. There are communities, and I've used Howie Acres in my district as an example, which is bounded by the Plaza, Sugar Creek, Eastway, and the light rail it's right by the Sugar Creek Light Rail Station. It's just north of Noda. It's right near the new Eastway Rec Center that the county just completed, which is state-of-the-art facility. There's so many awesome things going on in that corridor. That neighborhood, a historically black neighborhood, um, it's about 50% owner-occupied, owner about 50% rental. My fear, and these are primarily older houses, most of which have not been renovated or updated or anything, and that's why they're, they've stayed affordable. My fear is if we flip that switch and say all those lots now can be duplexes and triplexes and we have not considered the potential negative impact of that, which could be that that landowner who'd long been content to rent for $1,100 a month but not really invest much in the property, that he goes, he or she says all of a sudden, okay, I can build triplex and heat. I can- Oh, it's a I heat can, is what you're saying. Yeah, fix that. Yeah. And he or she says, I can make what two or three units pronoun that, that he or she goes by or they and all the of them can rent for all of them can rent for $1,600 or $1,800. You don't know how to Democrat, man. What's wrong with you? A lot of people are going to be displaced. And Victoria's got a lot of neighborhoods in her community, in her district that would face the same challenge, which is you've suddenly created a really, really strong incentive for someone to come in and say, it no longer makes sense to have a naturally occurring affordable single family rental home on my property if I can have multiple units and rent them for more than I was getting for that single unit before. I think that that could be a major blind spot for us. And, and Victoria and I have both voiced that to staff. Staff is, is committed to us that they will go in and try to figure out how do we use sure. a scalpel on this and and mitigate that. Listening impact. to council members and then following up with scalpels and not hammers, 
Yeah, that's one of their big uh, proof points and uh, success points of the last year. Let me ask you this question. I just this just this just occurred to me. All that and why do you think? Because I genuinely like Taiwo. I've liked him from the beginning. He's a, he's a cool guy. He's he's very interesting and unique. Yes, I just I'm like guessing him. at this point he doesn't much like you anymore. But well, I don't know. And here's why I'm I'm ask, I'm going to ask the question. I've been vocal in my concerns about this and everything. Why do you think he hasn't reached out to me once since all this hit the fan to even talk about it? And it, 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 it's bothered me more and more and more. And I've gotten more heated about it because I see nothing being fixed. But why do you think he has, like, usually it, when I got a problem a, with some a staff question. member, leader, or whatever, and, we, and it gets to a point where we're talking about it in public, we talk the next day, we get lined up, and we're good to go. He didn't even try to reach out. What, why would you? It's a, it's a fair question. It's a fair question, but also you you staked out your corner so hard and with so much hyperbole that you basically sounded like your no, no, entire- no, You're talking about the last two weeks. This was months, months of me okay, building up well, saying, I'm concerned, I'm concerned. Why, no one, he didn't even call and talk to me. It, it has come across at times that your goal is not to fix this document, but to kill this document. And I'm not saying that's your intent. I'm saying it seems that way with some of the things you've said. And so I can understand that someone might feel, I, I think it's a fair point. He, sh he should have reached out to you and y'all should. So you think it's my goal? I come, I've come no, across I, I, as my goal I, is to kill the document? I didn't say it was your goal. I said it can come across that it might oh, be so your goal. it comes goal across, yeah. As that you'd rather kill this thing than fix it. And if that was, if someone believed that, then why would they engage with someone if the whole goal is to, is to kill the thing? I think if you, I mean, that's again, interesting. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not entirely putting this on you because he, he should be obligated to reach out to all oh, of oh, us. I don't know. Maybe that's fair. I, I, it's, it's news to me, at least in it's, it's a little shocking to me to think that, and I'll trust you immensely to know if this, if this is actually the case or not, that someone would think so. So then th that by definition is like, I don't want a comprehensive plan at all. Well, I mean, you've already said you want to see the can kicked on this a year. Well, that's that's because it, what, what I mean, and perhaps I'm not articulating this well enough, is I we need a comprehensive plan. I've been a huge advocate of it for years. In fact, I'm the one behind the scenes three and a half years ago that sat down as they were, as Taiwo just got on board and we were, they were, me, him and Marcus sat in his office and they're like, what do you think? We're going to go forward and the UDO and this. And I said, you guys need a pause. So we ended, I ended up be the re, being the reason they paused the UDO to focus on the comprehensive plan. So that was our North Star for the UDO. So, I mean, I've been a huge, I, I never, it never crossed my mind that people based on the way I've, 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 I've related it would think I didn't want it at all. I just, my mind is like, this is, this has so much work to do. That well, again, I, I think like, the same thing you're saying about a scalpel versus a hammer, you know, if you're- Is that the point you made to me the other day? Probably, yeah. Is that I get it now. I didn't even know what you were saying. I get it. Okay. Is that, <laughs> that that you want them to use a scalpel in their approach to the work, but then you use a hammer with your approach to, to critiquing it? I didn't I I didn't as usual, you just say words that come out and I don't fully get uh, so I'm gonna actually for another once for uh, we've got uh, a breakthrough. Yeah, I mean yeah, I, I didn't but even so, even if that's the case, like, fine. So let me just say, unequivocally, 
The right? No. <laughs> in, not... Indispensably, indisputably, um, I want I'm gonna a you, comp I'm gonna plan you a for Charlotte. For Christmas. I believe a comp plan is critical for Charlotte. And I believe that we cannot move forward with a UDO until we have a comp plan and a good comp plan. However, I do not believe it can be a manifesto that is unconnected to reality and measurable uh, tools by which we can do the next step. So the measurable tools is actually another one of the things that I have voiced concern around and said in some of these things, uh, and the example I gave at the council meeting was, we talk about our vision zero commitment or our vision zero effort, which is to say that there should be no traffic related fatalities on our streets. And that should always be our goal. And if there's one in a calendar year, that's not good enough. But I also think we need to set achievable, measurable goals as interim steps towards that end. Because again, our goal should be we don't ever cut down a tree, that no one ever dies on our streets, that there's not a single homicide in our community. All these things should be the North Star goal. And we can't be satisfied with anything short of that. But we also need a goal that we can hit. And so, and especially interim goals to achieve as we work our way towards those things. So I, I agree with you. There needs to be more measurables in here. And in some cases you see them and in some cases you don't. And to me, there's a disconnect there. Why are we not putting metrics behind some of these things that we say we want to achieve? So I agree did you with know, you. Did you know that this, that this 320 page document calls for um, a um, environmental justice league of, of masked individuals that go around. I think Justice League is like a, a DC comic book or something. Just or Marvel, I don't know. You probably know more about comics than I do. I definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, man. Well, we solved it. It doesn't I, call me. We don't need to go too deep because here's what I'm proposing. I feel like these articles on Monday are going to get a lot of buzz. Enough so that we're going to see a spike in this episode when people are like, whoa, what's going on here? And they and then I think that's going to require us. As long as Sam and them don't just totally drop the ball on their piece, right? Or that's going to require you to out of the water Sam, to bring Sam on this program for a full Justice Twenty Forty Comp Plan Justice League fight. Or or Taiwo and or Taiwo. Well, he's got to call me first. <laughs> he and I still talk. I'll I'll talk to him about well, yeah, it. Yeah, because you're out there championing uh, championing uh, this. Because uh, I'm out there using a scalpel, not manifesto, a hammer. Manifesto, scalpel the manifesto. You can't scalpel a manifesto that easily. You got to hammer it. Makes metaphors. You're so good at it. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to give an analogy on this. That's our new thing in council. By the way, if anyone, it's not I, a new I, thing. You you've been doing it. Malcolm yeah, but I formalized joined, it in a meeting last week or this. Malcolm week. Malcolm has joined the analogy team when he came back onto council this term. Um, Becca's trying most, to freaking Becca's trying to finagle her way back onto the episode. I see that. Not until you. Here's the deal, Becca. You get on my side, and me and you debate against Sam and Kiva, and then we're good to go. All right, Larkin, I got to go. I got a soccer practice. I don't know what that's code for, but I don't want to know. And uh, so it's been fun. It's for kids, actually. Also, Becca, you have been on the podcast. Yeah, recordings. So needy, Becca. The free market. Um, and for, it, and for our audio-only listeners, it. again, we Facebook live stream, so check us out on there, too, and then you'll understand that we are responding to real-time comments. Thanks for joining Madeline Keeter. Uh, and everyone else. Even, uh, even Dina DiOrio was on with us there for a bit. Who? Uh, you might have heard of her. She's the county manager. The most powerful woman in Charlotte? In Mecklenburg County, yes. 
of Mech, all of Mecklenburg County. All of Mecklenburg. Is she gone? County. Dana. Yeah. Maybe she heard us. Was it was it on the podcast that we were talking about who would win in a cage fight between her and Marcus? And we agreed it was her. Was that on the last podcast? I don't know if that was that or if it was in real life, but we we definitely believe. No, that I Dina, think we talked about that. Dina that in the would podcast, beat Marcus actually. in a cage match. Tweet so us. Maybe that's why she tuned in to see if we if we had any more uh, glowing praise for her. And Comment we, we or tweet us if you've made it this far in the episode. The code word that we know that you're there and you're going to be cage fight. Okay, is it just say just say uh, Team Marcus or Team Dina? Okay, that who's actually this is a terrible idea. <laughs> Now that I think about it, uh, just say Team M or Team D. That way, it's it's like no one knows what Hashtag we're talking. Hashtag Manager Cage Fight. Uh, I think people will know what we're talking about, and we'll have started something we didn't mean to. Like this yeah, needs to be I, just an inside joke for R and D in the QC. It should be an outside joke. I think we should actually arrange it. We put them in the inflatable sumo suits, and an we do it. We raise joke. money. We raise money for charity. Okay, then fine. You're agreed. If that's the plan, so say uh, hashtag manager showdown, hashtag team Marcus, hashtag team Dina, depending on which one you vote would win. And then we'll make it all about charity. All right. That was episode 111, the triple single of R&D in the QC. And we appreciate you joining us as always. Check out Tarek. Uh, his op-ed, The Observer, on Monday, and uh, the probably better written one from Sam and Kiba also on Monday, and then uh, we'll, we'll go from there. This this is not the end of the 2040 Comp Plan or Arts and Science Council conversation, I feel certain, uh, so we will come back to you as we have updates, but like, share, rate, do whatever you can to help spread the word, and uh, we love you guys. Triple single, we're out. And by the way, Larkin, I guess there's no scenario by which you're ever going to use, use that phrase again. So I just want to say to you, I well, hope you genuinely, to, we... you've known me for now for like almost four years. I hope you genuinely see in my face the level of respect I have for that, for that pull. Well, once we get to episode 1,111, it'll be, episode, it'll be the quadruple single. Larkin, <laughs> welcome back to the show. We won't even, I, I don't think, will we still be alive by then? It's unlikely we both will. Check out the Roblox IPO, everybody. All right, we're out. Bye.